0: There's a butt out in front of the plate. Johnson's up, but it'll have to hurry. And he can't get it. The ball goes down the right field line and is on his way to second. And it's going to be scored as an error on the throw.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the BBA Today. I believe this is number 58. I am Ted Schmidt, uh, GM of Nobody, and I'm joined, as always, by Ron Collins, GM of the Yellow Springs Nine. Good whatever time of the day it is to you, Ron. How are you doing today?
0: <laughs> Good morning, Mr. GM of Nobody. Yep. I guess it is still morning here in, in uh, Oro Valley, Tucson, whatever, whatever we call this Arizona place. It's 10.50 in the morning.
1: Oh, that's not bad. It is so like that in Atlanta. So, you know, I can add numbers. Um, we have some some topics for today because we always have some topics because you and I can talk about anything BBA related or not for uh, just baseball strategy related forever. I would wonder if our you know, listeners realize that most of the time we've been yammering each other for about 30 minutes to an hour before we start recording these things going, we should start the podcast. We should start the podcast sometime soon. Hey, you know what? After this point, we'll start the podcast. <laughs> and then uh, at some point we finally oh, maybe
0: maybe I'll make good on my uh, on my threat the other uh, one of the other times and actually put out a worst of Ron and Ted talks yeah the yeah. rambling the rambling things that we do before and after
1: you have to be really careful because all we do is just crap on all the other GMs in the league and talk about how we're so great and how lo- <laughs> and how Loserville is terrible
0: well we all okay. agree on Loserville no matter what so yeah Take that, Shaw. Oh, the big, of course, the most important thing going on right now is Dongpo Thumb's 29-game hitting streak. That's uh, we're we're in early mid-August, and he's got a 29-game hitting streak.
1: I don't even know what the BBA record is.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting question. I have no idea.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Every once in a while, someone brings it up, and I'm like, oh, that's pretty cool. I should remember that because like 56 is a big number in real life, and I think I should know the BBA one, but like. I, I I think it's legitimately hard to get to. I think it's I think it's real. I think it's somewhere in the low 50s, or it's possible that it's even longer.
0: It's possible for some reason the number 47 comes to mind, but I have no idea whether that's real or not. Calling somebody out there who knows, maybe uh, Randy or Mike or
1: somebody knows.
0: Somebody I knows. Think...
1: Yeah, because somebody's brought it up. I mean, I've seen it brought up, like, you know, so somebody actually knows it off the top of their head. Um, Maybe, maybe not. Um, We we always seem to start with ugly stuff, but there were a couple more significant injuries this year. Um, You need to stop saying good things about teams because you called Boise kind of a dark horse still in it. I did. uh, I don't know that they are now. I'm Um, so
0: sorry, Joe. (laughs) I'm so sorry.
1: In fact, Joe. Joe was gonna. We were gonna have Joe on to talk about his uh, trade value series. And the real story is he couldn't find time. But the story I'm gonna go with is Ron injured Dennis French, and now Joe won't talk to us.
0: I think that probably is some. There's some truth to the truth to the uh, to the put the power in the pudding. What what is the word that I'm trying to come up with? There's there's truth to the situation there. I mean, I think I I called I. Had us talk about uh, Stephen Clulow, and he went and fell off the cliff. And then I started talking about Boise, and now poor Dennis French has broke his hand. He's going to miss the entire year. Um, who else can I talk about? <laughs> well, you keep
1: talking about how Louisville is good and Shaw is great, and he'll find some way to deal with these injuries. And every time you say that, he loses another pitcher. So maybe you should just keep that up
0: problem with that is that shaw is definitely great and he always deals with pitcher injuries and he just doesn't have any problems um still winning games so i guess i could keep doing that
1: how do you feel though about the the browning injury i mean maybe not you know personally i don't want you to sit there and go i feel great i'm you know (laughs) wringing my hands with glee i know i
0: i hate i i uh, esoterically, as a member of the of a baseball league, I like the difficulties that injuries and so forth cause us, and so forth. So I am not trying to say that we should turn injuries down, but I absolutely hate to see uh, star pitchers get hurt. You know, I've had it happen to my star pitchers. I know how it feels. And as much as I enjoy the difficulty factor that that gives us, whenever you see a guy like Browning or you know Don Smith got hurt and when lelouch got hurt for phoenix i mean those are those are a shame
1: it's not even so much that they get hurt and they miss time it's that you almost know for certain that they're going to come back diminished and that they're going to get hurt again and when they get hurt again they're going to be nothing like they used to be that's the part of it that stands out for me is that our recovery rate to full excellence for these young pitchers that get hurt is essentially nil
0: yeah, um, and I, would I don't know. With I'm, that. I'm not
1: making an argument that that's not realistic. I don't really have a good. I don't know what the real life comparison is. It's just what really gets to me when I see these guys get hurt. Is you're just sitting there going, "Oh, there goes another one."
0: Yeah, and I don't know. I don't completely agree with that. I I think that you're right in some ways and not in others. I think the recovery rate for pitchers on their first big injury is fine. You see a lot of guys will still come back and pitch well. I mean Browning came back from a torn labrum, which is a pretty major injury, and was just fine. The big question is, will he come back from this radial nerve problem? I think he's got a radial nerve decompression, whatever the heck that is. I'm not, I'm, I'm no doctor. I don't know what it is. His elbow hurts. You know, will he come back from that one? I don't know, and that's probably the biggest issue that I have, because I know real life, I mean... Somebody did this great study, and I have to go find it, uh, did an article about number of pitchers with Tommy John surgeries who pitched last year, 2019, right? And it's like 60% of pitchers who pitched in the major leagues have had a Tommy John surgery. And I'm making that number up, but it's a large number.
1: Right. Yeah, I've seen. I I may have read that.
0: Right. And I think BB, I think Out of the Park does that pretty well. What I don't know that Out of the Park does well, and I have no basis and is where you're kind of getting to, is how many of these guys come back and get hurt again and again and again, and then they get ground into zero, right?
1: That's what I'm starting to feel more than anything, and I will say I am kind of somewhat surprised to look at Browning coming back with no no ratings deterioration. I feel pretty strongly that almost any of these guys that misses a year loses a point of something. And that's maybe that's realistic. You know, it's just again, it's the it's the combination of those two things. It's the fact that they get hurt when they're young and they usually lose a point to something. And even in the case like Browning, where they didn't almost all of them, it really does feel like they get hurt again. And they, like you said, they get ground yeah. down into nothing.
0: Well, I think a lot of that has to do with that word you just use. It feels like I did a series back uh, season or three ago where I went through all of the injuries that have occurred for uh, all of the elbow injuries, I think it was, it's either elbow or shoulder, because I was going to do one first and then the other second, and I only did the first one. So let's say elbow for this conversation. Um, I, I went through and I looked at every elbow surgery that had occurred for 10 years or something like that and tried to look through, okay, what did this pitcher do? Did they lose ratings over time? It's, was it related to the injury or not, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, it's not every pitcher, every pitcher that there are many pitchers who come back, whatever you want to call maybe, and they're not degraded. But many pitchers also, whatever you want to call many, become degraded. And even more importantly, if they get hurt a second time, then they really can degrade again. So my own case is Carlos Pineda. Um, I'm concerned about him uh, because he had a uh, shoulder inflammation last year and then had a A problem again this year, so I'm knocking on wood that he won't be totally devastated. But I fully expect he'll come back at least a point or two down because it's a second injury. I would suggest as a BBA out of the park GM that when a pitcher gets hurt the first time big, that you be really careful with them for six months when they come back. Low pitch counts, right? Make sure they're not pitching when they are tired. Um, that's the whole picture of use point, you know, PAP system is definitely in out of the park.
1: That's what I was going to say. Do we we know that they're still using it? I know they implemented it. I just didn't know if they kept up with it since, you know, you and I have had a little bit of a dust up in the past about uh, the terminology we use when describing the PAP system. I consider it to be a very flawed system, but there is some utility to the model i just don't think it's a. i i'm fairly certain that the only true nuggets of wisdom that came out of the pap system is that with very high pitch counts the rate of injury goes up substantially to like a statistically significant degree but that like at lower levels and that was with the original pap model not like pap cube whatever but um with a basic version of pap that was available at the time we know OTP implemented it now I don't know what they're doing now
0: I cannot imagine that the pap system has been discarded they may have tweaked it in certain ways um, but I can't imagine it's been discarded because the game needs a uh, injury algorithm and I know that Matt uh, Matt uh, Marcus worked very closely with baseball prospectus in order to come up with uh, who's the big A BP guy that was doing injuries for a really long time to come up with the with a realistic injury model, and I think that model is, in quotes, pretty good. Yeah. The challenge that I have with it, discomfort that I have with it, is the multiple injuries, and it doesn't happen to every pitcher. I mean, you can find lots of good pitchers, Um, so maybe it could be tweaked as simply as making more pitchers, in quotes, durable. (laughs) <laughs> but, you know, Carlos Peña was durable also when he got hurt, and um, now he's not, so we'll see what you what know. happens and, there. The it, real bottom line, I think, when it comes to injuries, and Louisville in particular, right, is at some point, even a great general manager like Shaw is going to have difficulty dealing with losing multiple pitchers. Yellow Springs, I just lost two day-to-day injuries for only like two weeks,
1: Josh Henson
0: and Ernesto Ramos Ramos are both going to be out. So that's going to cost me a couple of weeks. I'm going to put them on the deal, and I'm just not going to let them pitch when they're even partially hurt because I am not going to have them hurt forever, and Josh Henson is already fragile. So the ability to deal with a a set of injuries is super important, and I think Louisville's loss of Pyrus is just going to compound. Louisville may actually be in trouble of making the playoffs this year.
1: I, I think they are, and we got a little far afield there, but that was kind of my point in bringing up the Browning injury is that Louisville has been sliding a little bit these last few Sims, and they've just been losing arm after arm all yeah. year long.
0: At some point, you just can't deal with it.
1: Right, and I I just kind of wonder if they're getting there now. You know, they've slid a little bit for a while. Um, of course, last time I said that about a team, that team went on a huge tear. Um, there you go. That Never Edmonton, but Edmonton's fallen back now too, so right. I'm right. Everybody else is wrong. (laughs) Well, and and, and it can
0: happen to anyone. I mean, Yellow Springs, uh, my my team in 37, we already had some problems, but we lost three starting pitchers and we only won 80 games. That happens. You just can't deal with it. But there are several really interesting uh, injuries going on this this particular sim that uh, we talked about French. You know, Dennis French in Boise and Angel DiCastillo is only going to miss two weeks in Phoenix, but... This is a really important two weeks for Phoenix. Uh, That injury to DiCastillo has some potential postseason ramifications because Phoenix is on a bit of a tear here. They're actually in the playoffs as it is. So what happens in Phoenix is going to be interesting to see, right? Um,
1: I do wonder, um, or not wonder, I just wanted to point out that uh, Phoenix uh, showed up, Marco showed up in the uh, league chatter thread for the Sim, Uh, This most recent one saying, you know, I think something to the extent of I don't know how we're doing it, but we're doing it. And the answer is you're hitting a buttload of home runs. And I wonder, again, do we know for certain that Marco is interested enough to comment in a league chatter thread because his team is winning or because he's hitting a buttload of home runs? (laughs) And is his enjoyment so tied to hitting a buttload of home runs that he has now come back without even knowing that's what's going on?
0: It's possible (laughs) to try to get into the psychology of Sean Marco is a really dangerous thing, as far as I can tell. As close as I want to get to it is to read all all of those fantastic
1: TNs about Matt selling Nissans. That would be a much funnier man than I am.
0: There you go. On top of that, you look at Brooklyn has lost Francisco Flores for a couple of weeks, and we just talked about Brooklyn. They're in a situation. Can they afford to lose Flores for four weeks? That's a that's a tough injury at a really tough time. Another one that I thought was interesting is Seattle's uh, Juan Rubio, reliever. I'm actually wondering whether that's a positive.
1: Yeah, that's kind of when I saw that when I was like, well, maybe that's good. I mean, it, it, it's not bad, right? Like, I guess if it means that Castillo or Shang pitches more I guess that's bad.
0: The question ultimately is, does he have some guys down in the minors who might be better than Rubio? And I think the answer to that might be yes. So we'll see what happens before that's all said and done. Reggie Vargas in San Fernando is going to miss five weeks. That's a pretty big. Uh, that's a pretty big loss for San Fernando. The point here is, is that usually you look down the injury list and there's like two or three guys you can kind of go, oh, okay, that's going to be a problem. We're at this point of the season where when you lose one or two of your big names, if you're in the middle of a scrum, that's a bit of a problem. And so there were several really impactful injuries this year.
1: And part of that is because we've gotten to the point of the year where everybody's already lost a guy or two. And so now each player you lose, you know, you kind of wonder, is that the nail in the coffin sort of thing or another nail in the coffin or a final nail, the bigger nail? I don't know. Um, <laughs> while we're on the San Fernando subject, Randy doubled down on the 18 year old six year deal strategy this last sim when he picked up, uh, I gotta find this DFA. He picked up Ramon Gonzalez, another 18 year old. This guy's only a 45 pot, 5'65 righty uh, with no split. And he paid him almost $20 million over six years. We will probably throw him right into the rotation or right into the bullpen. He's durable. I'm just excited that now I have a sample size of 2 <laughs> instead of 1. Like I don't know what to expect out of this. I'm just glad that it's happening. Like, it's
0: yeah, it's it's interesting, you know. Like do you want another teenage kid who you can go on the suspended list for throwing a beanball at somebody? I guess that that works, you know.
1: Well, this one's at least a, not a minor. Uh, that's start. true.
0: That's true. And uh, in that case, maybe the the batter can actually be <laughs> arrested for actual assault and battery, or rather than child abuse. I do Great.
1: <laughs> like however, that works out. Yeah, that's true.
0: But I will say um, that, that the Wanho uh, Park experiment has been um, a wonderful disaster at 6.94 ERA so far. So it'll be. Interesting to see whether maybe maybe there will be a camaraderie between Gonzales and Park, and they will find a way to uh, to boost themselves up. I don't know. We have to make up lots of interesting, good conversation there. But I agree with you. It's it. I find it interesting. I'm glad that Randy did it. It'll be fun to watch.
1: Well, the other the other thing you wonder about with these guys is um, speaking of teams that are sliding. San Fernando has been kind of hanging in there, but they're slowly sliding back. And I wonder if, let's say it's two weeks from now and they're, you know, under 500 and, you know, just have been consistently tailing off. I wonder if you put these guys, if you demote them to like double A, you know, and just let them face their own. Is there, do you think there's anything to be gained from that? Or they've been in the majors and they're quote unquote developed. Do you just leave them in the majors or do you think that there's something to be gained from putting these guys into a more age appropriate environment and letting them beat up on competition? Does the game have confidence built into development, I guess, is the question I'm asking.
0: I think if anybody knew that that you know, they would yeah. immediately be O T P fake billionaires, right?
1: Yeah, kicking the crap out of the rest of us. <laughs> yeah.
0: So I don't I don't know as far as that goes. I will admit fully that as I manage my miners, I'm looking at success in combination with ratings for moving players up. Right. So quite honestly, uh, it's hard. To, the thing that makes these two guys interesting is that they have no background to make any assessment on as far as are they actually ready or not ready. Right. Where are their bars inside those relative ratings? No clue. So I will admit that if it were me, I would probably not have thrown them up into the majors to begin with, but I can't say that that was a necessarily good, bad, or indifferent idea. San Fernando needed pitching. We've been complaining about San Fernando's pitching for years and years, but this year they're probably even in bigger problems. And at the end of the day, they're competing. So
1: Gonzalez isn't entirely unheard of. He pitched in college last year, somehow, somehow, um, or this year. Somehow he was an 18-year-old college player this spring, which doesn't make sense. He should have been in high school if he was 18 this spring, but uh, an 18-year-old college player that got drafted and is still 18, but I guess he pitched in college, sort of, at least. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think Park... Park also was a 17-year-old this year in college, somehow. Peter leagues are goofy.
0: No, it has to do with the movement of feeder leagues from BBA to Umeba.
1: Oh, that's right. That's why they're being called. That's why they're, okay. Yep. All right. Uh, Mystery solved. Uh, So, yeah, happy it's happening. Don't know what to expect. You know, there is one other contract I want to talk about just briefly. Um, Las Vegas extended Tom Rudge. I know who Tom Rudge is, and I don't know why I know who Tom Rudge is. I know that Recht has talked about him a lot. He's been blocked a few times over the years. There's been a lot of stories about Recht was trying out outfielders that should have been better than Rudge, and those guys sucked, and he kept going back to Rudge. And so that's why I know who Tom Rudge is. But like for a guy whose name I know, one, he's awfully young still. He's only 25, and it feels like recht has been talking about Tom Rudge for at least 47 years. And yeah. then also, he's just not that great. Why do I know so much about him, Matt Rechtenwald? Why do you keep <laughs> talking about Tom Rudge? Like, is he, a, is he a friend of yours? You know, I don't. I
0: don't well, know. I mean, well, he's been around for a long time because he came up as a, what an 18-year-old or something like that. So yeah, he's only 25, but he's been in the league for what is it, seven years? I'm looking at his record here.
1: Yeah, and he's basically been a, everything you'd want out of a fourth outfielder. You know, just the perfect fourth outfielder the whole time he's been around and the extension i mean for what that is is pretty reasonable especially considering those 49 and 50 options um the extension we we do a better job i've noticed when i was listening to these of telling people what we're talking about because not everyone's got to have the game open so rudge signed a six-year deal um for 1.8 2.8 3.8 3.8 so those are the first four years and then two team options uh for 4.8 million that i am almost certain will not be picked up the last couple of years of that are a little bit pricey for a fourth outfielder, but not bad. I'd be, I would be absolutely happy to have just that high of a caliber fourth outfielder on the roster. I think.
0: Right now he's a, a solid platoon right-handed bat, right? So by definition his WAR is not going to be particularly high. But if Matt keeps him hitting primarily left-handed pitching, he'll, he'll be a value, and I think that contract is actually good. I think one of the reasons why you know Tom Rudd is because when he came up, he was playing center field and looked like he should be a pretty good center fielder. His rating bars were pretty high, and the ultimate problem was he was never really a particularly great defensive center fielder. If yeah. he had been, his overall war numbers would be more like one and a half and two, whereas instead they're like a half. He has not made the defensive war that he should have been making based on his rating bars, and that's a question... The defensive rating bars are something that I've been trying to pay attention to for the last BBA decade. Uh, What is a good center? Can a a 7-range play center field? Back in the early 30s, a 7-range could play center field. It would be a poor center field, but as long as they had a bat, you could put him out there and he wouldn't kill you, right? Today... You can have a nine-range center fielder, and you've got to watch his stats because he may not be a top third center fielder, right? If you've got a low nine or a high, an eight can barely play if they can hit. Uh, Rudge is an eight right now, and he cannot play center field, right? I mean, he can't play it as a backup, but if you put out –
1: yeah, 162 games. Of 162
0: games at with yeah. Tom Rudge in center fielder. He's going to put up a replacement level WAR.
1: It's it's just another one of the things. Like the you know the BBA is a high ratings league. Uh, part of that just has to do with the ratings creep that happens over time. You know, it's a few leagues, but I just wish it wasn't. I would I would prefer us to have. Um, either OTP standard or maybe slightly above OTP standard rating. And the defensive ratings are, are a big part of the thing. You know, I do kind of wonder, we had this huge offensive spike, you know, the, those last couple of years before Matt changed some of the league settings to kind of get that under control. I actually kind of wonder um, how much of that offensive spike was, it was clearly largely due to those huge bumper drafts we had. Absolutely. There was a period of bumper drafts followed by a period. uh, Well, not just actually it wasn't the bumper draft. There was a period of crazy scout finds and IFA's that were followed up by bumper drafts. And the bumper draft players are just now all becoming superstars. So this is going to persist for a bit. And there were some pitcher injuries and some other stuff. But we basically went through there were there were more great bats that showed up. But I actually kind of wonder how much poor outfield defense has contributed to the offensive spike that we saw. Um, particularly in the corners, it is it has been become quite difficult to find quality defending corner outfielders. There were just all of those drafts while they had these incredible bats in them were guys with three and four outfield range, um, you know, guys with seven range that were supposed to be center fielders. But now those guys are playing in the corners and now we're playing guys in center field that really don't have the bat to play anywhere. But they're the only ones that have ranges that can keep up with the real quote unquote real center field, you know, like. How did the how did defensive rating shifts like we've seen play into big changes in lead offensive output? Um,
0: Good question. And in that same light, right, when I'm talking about a 9 rating in center field is almost required right now. Right. Uh, one of the reasons why Rudge's WAR numbers are up a little bit this year and will probably wind up being semi-respectable, even though he's not getting massive playing time, is that he has been moved into a corner Right, uh, for the most part, and he is a very good corner outfielder from a defensive standpoint. You put uh, these uh, zone ratings and my plays above average and things like that are key uh, keyed off of average. So when somebody says can a seven play center field, well today they cannot because the average is much higher. In the past, you could put a seven in center field and make it work because the average center fielder was not as rangy, was not as solid. And the secondary error and arm play in that to some degree also. It's a complex uh, mix. So, yeah, I think that's a great question. Tom Rudge becomes much more valuable as a left fielder than he would be as a center fielder in that situation.
1: There's another another thing that I thought... You know that showed up as as I was scrolling through the last sim. There was a note that I don't know which O'Brien is in Boise. Is it Joey O'Brien that's in Boise? Um, some O'Brien once out of Boise. Rumors uh, rumors are circulating around town. Say that shortstop Oats oh, Joey O'Brien is not happy at all about playing in Boise, and that the Spuds are actively shopping him around. My question is, is like, where does this come from? Like, where does how does the game do this? And I know. You know, back when I was reading the manual, like I knew, I remember reading some stuff about how, like, say you've got like a established starter on the roster, and you trade for another guy that plays the same position. There's actually some code in there to make that player a little unhappy, um, or you know, if they're not, um, if they think that they should be starting and they're not playing, you know, there's that whole uh, where's the expectation thing that you can see when you look at their personal details and if they're not in the middle of the lineup if they're not batting leadoff, or if they're not a starter and they think they should be you know in the middle of the lineup that they can get unhappy but like what do you what do you make of that when that happens to your team do you care do you think it affects their performance do you think the game just generates these randomly i never really know what to what am i supposed to do with that when <laughs> news tells me that joey o'brien wants to be traded
0: yeah that's a the storylines are a uh, are quite a mixed bag for me i've that are intriguing, it feels like they ought to have something to do with what's really going on, and you can kind of see it in Joey O'Brien's performance, right, he's not, he's hitting 184 on the year right now, so it makes some logical sense that the game would look at what he's doing and make him unhappy. He's been in the minors for a part of the year for probably very good reasons, you know, I can make a pretty good fictional argument that 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 storyline is completely right, and uh, but I think what's underneath your question is, does it actually influence what's going to happen in the future? And, you know, I don't know. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, the, you know, the other um, the other thing is that we know that Joey is a good teammate who never misses a chance to play golf, according to his personality blurb. That's so right. I'm not even sure that he should care so much that he's riding the pine. But the, the question I've got to ask about that is: you mentioned, If unhappiness is part of what plays a role in the demand to be traded, it kind of becomes a chicken and the egg thing, right? Like, am I unhappy because I'm riding the pine and then my performance goes down and then I become unhappy and then I demand the trade? Or is it I'm riding the pine and then I'm demanding a trade because I'm riding the pine and then my happiness goes down and then my performance goes you know, it's almost this self fulfilling like I would bet you that there's almost like a one-to-one correlation of, unha- of like supremely unhappy and trade demand, but that it really has less to do with usage than it does to do with player performance. The thing with Joey O'Brien is that he sucks. He's never been good. Um, he is your poster child for overall ratings and the lack of utility of them um, that the game can crunched together all of the underlying, because that's what the overall rating is, is the game is adding up all the all the ratings internally through some formula and trying to kick out a single number, and that number is failing to encompass the whole picture because it's found an edge case, right? And that's what Joey O'Brien's 55 overall rating is, is an ed- edge case where maybe there is a league where all those ratings would add up correctly and he would be a great player, but it doesn't appear to be this one. Um, I don't know where I was going with that. Joey O'Brien sucks too much to demand a trade. I think that's <laughs> where you should go.
0: That actually is a better frame of reference, although it's like, you know, when your utility infielder bitches and complains, should you care? Right. <laughs> uh, you yeah. know, I don't know. Joey O'Brien has never been particularly good, but it actually also makes me wonder to reflect back on our last conversation. I have not paid attention to Joey O'Brien's defensive ratings over the years but you know an eight infield range shortstop despite all of these great other bars
1: isn't good enough
0: may not have been good enough during this time period and his hitting has been he looks you know the he's got some green bars and some good things like that uh, but he's got holes and he's never other than one what one year with charlotte looks like i'm looking at the it has finally got around to looking at his actual numbers. One year in Charlotte, he was an above-league-average OPS hitter, but he's been really poor throughout his entire career.
1: It's actually a half-year with Charlotte. If you look at the whole year, he was still below average. Ah,
0: well, there you go. So, yeah, from a player analysis standpoint, when you look at these ratings... You know, eight, five, two, four, seven without any context, you'd go, oh, that guy ought to be able to at least play. I mean he's not gonna hit home runs, but you know, he'll get on base a little bit and and he's a good defender, so great shortstop. I ought to be able to use him. The reality of the matter is, is that no, that eight range, if assuming he's been in eight range for a while, says that you should be very careful with him at shortstop. He'd probably be a gold glove diamond winner at third base, but he probably is gonna struggle at shortstop relative to the league. My whole point there is is his flash looks better than what his performance has been. And when you look at it, you should be able, as a BBA GM, in my opinion, you should be able to look at this guy and say, this is a a problem. Even before you look at his stats, you should be able to look at his ratings and go, he might be able to play, but there's a good chance he cannot. Because he does not double, he isn't going to walk a whole lot, and he doesn't hit any home runs. So by definition, right. his offense is going to be holy, and that eight range should immediately tell you, i got to watch this guy. Yep, I agree. So, yes, bottom line, it doesn't have anything to do with does the fact that he's unhappy make any difference in the future. Um, probably a perfectly fine guy to have is a utility guy that gets 100 at-bats and can play defense at second base and third base.
1: Yep, but not that makes $5 million a year.
0: But not that makes $5 million a year, right. Yep.
1: So uh, those are those are the things I had that I noticed this week. Is there anything that you – I think you had a couple things. Um, I know we wanted to talk about Joe's trade value series. I think there's a lot of interesting stuff. Yeah, to, I want to g- end up there. talking
0: about trade value series. But I, uh, the one thing that we haven't talked about at all, and, and we don't have to get into it super deep, is I just want to mention Chris Mann is hitting 390 in a league that is hitting as a league. The whole Frick League as a league is hitting 249 in – Chris Mann is hitting 390 in that league, and I wanted to make take a second to kind of ask you from a comparison basis. Like two years ago, the Italian Archibedelli hit 399 in a league that hit 265, and that was a big deal. Compare contrast. What are your what are your thoughts here? Is Chris Mann going to actually be able to hit 400?
1: I'm just going to go with no because it doesn't happen. Comparatively, I think that Mann's achievement is much more impressive. Just again, it's the league average is considerably lower and he's still hitting almost, quote unquote, almost as good as Larch. I also think that in a a vacuum, I think man's a better player. To some degree of disbelief, I think I made the statement that I really wasn't that impressed with Larch in general as a player. I mean, it was cool that he was hitting that he was making a run at 400 and he had some definitely had a lot of value that year. But I know that at the time I said that I would not really I would trade him at that point and I wouldn't want him on my team. I would sell high because he was going to lose range. And as soon as he did that, he was going to become a marginal defender or a poor defender. Actually, he was already a marginal defender and um, would lose a large amount of value. Now, now he's 23 and he barely has enough range to play left field. Um, I would argue that he actually doesn't have enough range to play the left field. And that he is only looks acceptable out there because he does in fact not screw up when the ball comes at him. Still a great hitter. Great, great, great hitter. But you know, man is a gold glove first baseman. He may not be the exact type of hitting profile that you would want that you love at first base, but he has a you know he has he doesn't have no power. He has some. It is interesting that this is another player coming through Madison that is yet another Kind of, you know, <laughs> home of Dusty Rhodes, although I man's a better player than Dusty Rhodes, or at least I, I think he will be. You know, I it's interesting, but I, you know, I, I think man's just a, a better player overall, even when well, batting. Man's
0: a better player at the moment, you know, because he can, like you mentioned, he can actually play defense in a positive fashion, right? Someplace on the field, and I agree. Uh, Larch Bideli is probably still technically a better hitter. I'm intrigued with his performance because I just—it's quite the—it's—it's uh, it's a weird—it's <laughs> a weird performance. A 390 in a 249 environment is pretty solid, and I haven't actually looked at his splits and where he's been playing and hitting at home and away and all those other kinds of things. He plays in a pitcher's ballpark. But yeah, I've I've been extremely interested in Chris Mann just because you know I picked him out back in the early April May time period when it was just fun to say oh he's hitting four ten or whatever he was hitting and, right. Um, so yeah. I admit I did not expect him to be hitting three ninety at this time of the year. But the fact is that he is, and he only needs to get a little bit better for a short period of time to do something really weird and and miraculous. So
1: I, I would agree that um, Larchibudelli is a better hitter than Chris Mann maybe, but it's a lot closer than I think people would think based upon looking at their numbers. And the difference is, is that Larchavidelli is almost to the point where he shouldn't be facing left-handed pitching because while he can hit for average against left-handed pitching, he has almost no power to speak of from that side. Like he has barely has doubles power, but just barely and his split is pretty ugly whereas while you know like most left-handers man struggles against the opposite side he actually still has doubles power against left-handed you know he's not just a slap hitter um, against left-handed pitching and i think that gives him a good deal more value than people recognize i'm not going to dwell on his small sample size this year of actually hitting lefties better than righties that's Silly, he's not going to do that consistently. Right. Um,
0: and man has a little bit more power against lefties than Archibaldelli. I mean, uh, the yeah,
1: not just you know, three power, versus
0: a four yeah, doesn't sound like much, but when you're talking about you know three to four home runs a year, that's that's right. probably in that in that range. I mean, it's probably a tenth or two, three tenths of a war when you add it all up. Maybe more, I don't know.
1: Yeah, the weirdest thing about Chris Mann is that he's older than Larch of Not the weirdest thing, but a weird thing about Chris Mann is he's older than Larch of and he is his first full year in the bigs, whereas Larch has been around for five now. Right. Um, and Larch of was developed at a pretty young age, but just looking at his development track, mm-hmm. Mann could have been in the big leagues almost completely developed, like one point of contact short of Max two years ago. So that's there you go. just a thing. Yeah, just it thing is thing. So that's all.
0: All Well, you want to talk about trade value series? Joe's, sure. Um, Where do you Joe's want to start? Push. Oh, I don't know. I, first off, first and foremost, um, I just absolutely love this series because it makes me think about the way other people view things and and stuff like that, which is one of the great joys that I have in, in a league like this.
1: And then you run your fingers together and laugh at the idiots beneath <laughs> <in> you. <laughs> and how they look at who they think is good.
0: <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't... Yellow I wouldn't Springs
1: will ex- never stop being a monster. I wouldn't
0: exactly put it that way, but, you know, there is some truth <laughs> to that.
1: <laughs> no, well, I remember the first um, time
0: that Joe put these together, uh, myself and a couple other guys were throwing in information at him, and then, you know, he would take it and do whatever Joe does. And I the I like... One of the main things that I like about this is that it, it uses a, a value structure... That includes uh, production, contract status, injury aspect—you know, all these different things rolled together. Yep. So it yep. uh, provides for a really rich environment to make a argument. <laughs>
1: uh, yeah, I think I think the first thing to say is that it, it is a it's a tremendous benefit to the league to have this, both in terms of information and just fun stuff to chew the fat about. And um, it represents a large, large amount of work that's really, really impressive. To And it, it's, you know, going through it, um, you can see that there's kind of a consistency to it. This isn't just my off-the-cuff opinion. There really is a formula going on here, and it's pretty well planned out.
0: Well, and the cool thing there is the formula is in place, but you can actually see in Joe's write-up uh, where he's struggling with the formula, right? I mean, he gets a, right. he gets a yeah. framework in mind, and it's not just – Push a button and here's what the math says. You look at it and you go, oh. <laughs> but but is that real, right? Do, would you you put these two or three players together and you go, well, would you trade one for the other? I have, you know, no idea. Those are those are really fun.
1: Yeah, and I, you know, when I when I look at these sort of things um, in our league and in in, uh, in in Major League Baseball, I always find them kind of interesting because part of the inherent problem with a trade value series is what we come back to and we talk about when we are trying to figure out uh, grading trades in general, right? Because you can look at the absolute value of of war going either way, or you can, you don't have to use war, but like of whatever the player contributes to winning. You can look at those absolute values. You can look at it for one year. You can look at it for over multiple years. You can look at it for certainty versus possible range of future for the other people. Um, You can look at it in terms of, well, Uh, what's their value in a vacuum versus what's their value for a team that's trying to win versus a team that's trying to rebuild. So the idea of putting together a list uh, encompassing trade value is a pretty hard thing to do. And then, you know, when you get people saying, well, I think this guy should be three levels higher or three spots lower, or, you know, I disagree with this ranking on stuff. And like, you really kind of get into them Like, well, I mean, okay. You know, (laughs) like it's the sort of, of course you do because you're, you, you're you looking at the players from a different standpoint, and both may be, may be equally valid. Um, you know, one of the things, whenever I look at these series, and it's a, I would say it's a window into my mind, except I don't think anybody needs a window into my mind at this point. I run my mouth so much about how much I value players that if you haven't figured it out by now, you must be deaf. You know, for me, the most valuable player is the one that's not making any money. So... You know, I always disagree with the rankings on these lists because once you start paying guys, I would almost rather have a two-win player on a min salary than a seven-win player making $25 million. Now, I, I, I say almost because you need the big players, right? So at some point, you do absolutely have to have that expensive Yeah, I was going to say almost,
0: unless the guy's name is Ricardo Diaz, in which case he can pretty much write his own check, right? Right. <laughs> so... so
1: all-time strikeout leader. There you lead. go.
0: And and let me actually non, let me lead into this a little bit because I'm going to throw a player or two at you. Um, you know, because one of the things that you were talking about is you can look at things in multiple different ways. Player that I thought was interesting was David Simpson, right? I think Joe had him at number 41. He's got one more year left on his contract. For a team that is in true win now and doesn't really care much about the future and just needs a big bopper. David Simpson would be really uh, an interesting get because he doesn't have a lot left on his contract. One more year at $12 million is not horrible, and assuming that your finances are not Yellow Springs, <laughs> uh, which is most most teams have a little bit of wiggle room. You know, David Simpson would be a huge get. I don't think that Sacramento would consider trading David Simpson because shoeless has been uh, completely open on his, on his absolute love for David Simpson. Him. Um, but, uh, when you balance things, uh, do you see David Simpson at 41 is reasonable? Do you think he should be off the chart and honorable mention? Do you think he should be up much higher? It kind of, to me, it kind of depends on who the candidate is, right? Who the,
1: I think the reason this list is so good is that it's done from a very neutral perspective. I think the reason it's so limited is it's done from a very neutral perspective, right? And you're asking the absolute right question. Who is more valuable to a team that just needs to add one piece and doesn't have a lot of wiggle room? David Simpson or Dong Potham? You can make a really good argument that it's David Simpson for the team that just needs that one piece and – and they probably wouldn't have to trade as much to get David Simpson as they do Dongpo Thumb. So does that mean that David Simpson has more value and they're trading less to get more value? Does that mean that thumb then is then overvalued because you have to trade more to get him? You know, like it just starts turning into like this convoluted thought exercise that is essentially impossible to solve. And that's why again, I don't I'm not trying to trivialize the any of this like the effort that goes into this series or the the series itself, because I think it's a phenomenal thing to have and fun to talk about. But when you start talking about trade value, it starts to seem very trivial when you start asking questions in, in the manner that I just did not because it is, but because it right that it's that whole beauty's in the eye of the beholder thing it, it's just how it's going to have to work. every situation is different everybody has different fits and needs you know then that kind of dovetails into the thing that you had brought up that I, I thought was interesting before the show if you wanted to kind of explain that
0: yeah um, I mean- you know, as I start from an overall picture, right? I mean, I can go down through a couple of different players. Um, I, I like seeing Sean Huber in the honorable mentions category because we've had some conversations before about what is the trade market for Sean Huber. Very valuable player, hard to trade. Uh, Mitchell Purcell, I thought was interesting on that list. One of the things that I get overall is, as I look at all of the players, and Joe actually mentioned it in this write-up, is how do you start to lay in the value of, from a trade perspective of these high leverage, high inning relief pitchers, there's a bunch of them in there. How do you slide them in, right? Danny Leach, I think, was at eleven or fourteen or something like that. I think he's kind of the poster child for most valuable big inning reliever. And the question that Lane came up with on on his guy um uh, name is not
1: Lozano Lozano.
0: is it Carlos Lozano? Yeah Lozano. Um you know, that's an interesting question because he was so having such difficulty in his career um, Cornelia. Be, before Sorry. becoming a beginning reliever. And now he's, a you know, super uh, value. I mean, how do you do all these things? At the end of the day, I was sitting here looking at these players and going through especially the top 20 and top 40. And, you know, it struck me, do we have a situation in this league right now where essentially the Mike Trout syndrome is pervasive, You've got these players; they're super high value. It's, you can argue whether somebody should be number seven or number twelve or whatever the number is, and those are fun. The real question is: Are there markets out there where a team can get the actual value of their player? <laughs> right? Yep. Is this a buyer's market essentially? Is it? Does it? Are we at a point where? You know, you look at the top 20 and pick any of them at random. I'll pick number eight, Aaron Haney. Can anybody actually give Valencia what Aaron Haney is worth?
1: No, I would argue no, right? And that's that's the problem like that we have. And that's the problem with those big IFA classes and all those scout find, that scout find bonanza that triggered the big offensive surge. And Uber drafts, this is the problem with Uber drafts is that you create this huge divide between the great players and the not as great players. And you know, the the general the general feel is if you want a mid-ARB, pre-ARB to mid-ARB, you know, pre-big extension player. If you want, I'm developed, I'm established, I've got two, three years in the league, I'm a super stud. If you wanted to trade for that player, you're probably talking about three or four top prospects, right? And when three or four top prospects are three or four of that same player, either you don't have them or you'd be an idiot to trade those guys. That's I think that's where we are now where we've got a list that's 20 deep of Mike Trouts. that's they're all you'd be stupid to sell them. or if you did, like Aaron Haney's the perfect example. Valencia needs to sell Aaron Haney. Who's gonna give them value for Aaron Haney? Just as you asked. What what is there? There aren't the you either have to give up too much or too little. There maybe it's the talent distribution issue and we're just in a weird spot right now. But you know, that's where we are. We've got this bubble of incredibly elite players. And then, then then that comes back to the question of when that's the case then is their trade value actually zero? Are they less valuable because you can't give anything for them? That's obviously not true. But
0: functionally, it may actually be that way. The relative value over the ages, right, would essentially be negative in that sense. If you have Aaron Haney in 2036, you probably could get 270 overall prospects and a 55 and a flyer. So in relation to 2044, I don't think you can get that kind of player right now because I don't even know if there's a team out there who has that kind of, with the drafts that have been more pragmatic, (laughs) uh, for lack of a better term. And I don't really consider this to be a, in quotes, problem. I just consider it to be what is the system creating right now. And that's part of the deal with when when you're a general manager in any league, in, in this league in particular, you look at where the world has been and you're trying to project out five years and ten years what is the you know, what is the value of Po thumb going to be in three years, you have to think about where the players are going because if you look at on a counter, right, look at the players that have been coming through the draft over the past two to three years, which again I think are more realistic using the quotes over realistic, those players are gonna be coming to fruition here essentially now through the next three to four years, which then means that the trade market is gonna look a lot like those players seven and eight and 10 years from now. So how will that be different, right? The dynamic will be uh, considerably different, especially if there are more.
1: Yeah, and that's the, I mean, I think, you know, maybe not a problem, uh, problem is not maybe the right word, but a thing you would have to consider. And I think it's going to change the trading dynamic. I think you know, most of us would prefer to have a league where it is, if not easy, at least feasible to trade superstars, because who doesn't love a blockbuster trade? But when you have huge swings in the talent pools that are coming in, um, one, you have grumpy GMs, But two, you have situations like now where, like you said, who has the assets right now to trade for one of these guys? And like you said, again, six years down the road, when the guys that have been in the more reasonable draft pools that have come through recently are the guys in their primes. If we've swung back the other way to super drafts, well, then you're going to have people that are like, well, I need one of these quote unquote top center fielders and they're going to be giving up huge overpays. For them, because the only prospects you'll have will be a bunch of 80 grade. Pro- if we go that route, and I just, you know, it's me. I'm a I like stability and, and slow change, and I would just like to have. And I realize this isn't this is just the nature of the beast. There's going to be swings and talents, but if if you yes. could just get the game to crank out a nice consistent group of players, you know, one thing I've noticed as we go version to version even without any tweaks to the game, there seems to be kind of swings in what you get in IFA and what you get in scout finds, and, you know, um, right. And I, I, wish those swings weren't there. I wish you could just have a similar caliber of player coming into the league all the time with, you know, a little bit of up and down for variety, but not like we had drafts where the first 27 players would have been the first overall pick in the draft two years ago.
0: Yes. And I don't think those are a, uh, are related to out of the park versions. Those are related to how we were adjusting the player creation modifiers and different things like that. Sure, and yeah, that yeah, gets into a whole wonky. We could spend a we could spend a solid hour digging down into the depths of the of the creation. Right, and then, and
1: again, system. this isn't this isn't a dump on <laughs> dump on that. Like running a running a league that's been around this long. Uh, requires kind of a constant surveillance and maintenance, and frankly, sometimes things just unfold in a unforeseen way.
0: And to to get that back into Haney, right? One of the other questions that a general manager might have, uh, that Greg's mothers might have, or any of the other general managers of one of these top 20 guys, right? Uh, especially if you're actually desiring to move them, is the 5560 today? Yesterday's sixty five to seventy. With relative ratings, we don't know exactly where those things are. It could very well be that if Greg Smothers can trade Aaron Haney for a sixty and two fifty-fives or a sixty and a fifty five and a fifty, that's still enough to to actually be value add on the field. Right? It's just that our overall our ideas of overall ratings are one yeah, it could be, rate. like this
1: partially rate. maybe right. our brains haven't caught up with the player distribution, and it could be that relative ratings has kind of squeezed the middle together a little bit. Right.
0: So you take all these players who are 25, 26, 24, 25, 26, and they're 75s and 80s and so forth, run time forward three more years, and their ratings have now faded a little bit, and all of a sudden, in quotes, relative ratings. The fact that there is huge numbers, out there for relative ratings. Maybe when we flip the switch and we see real ratings, we'll see these fifty fives look pretty good.
1: Nope, I don't know. I'm I'm um, pretty I'm pretty pumped. I'm excited to see what the softs even brings. And I don't even have a. Maybe it's better because I don't have a horse in the game, so I don't have to watch my own players <laughs> turn out to be not what I wanted them to be. But um, I'm I'm interested. You know, you had brought up um, you'd asked me to find a player that I thought is in the wrong spot on that list, and I found one. It was hard, but not because I have trouble. Um, I'm not. I'm not good at lists. The list gets long enough, and my eyes start to gloss over, and I just can't. I start to, you know, when I try to. Eventually, I just kind of start looking at groups of players and go, like, that looks about right, and then I move to the next group of players. Because I think if you're, when you've got a project like this, you know, it's the same as when. Um, you know, like one of the uh, major sports writing outlets puts out a list of the greatest whatever of all time, the greatest 50 whatever. And someone's like, you put 47 below 45. And I'm just like, oh, shut up. I don't care. Like, just <laughs> what is wrong with you? That you're, that, you know, that's so. Um, so I have trouble when you ask me to find a guy that's out of place, but I found one. I did. But I want to hear yours first because you, you might be able to steal mine.
0: Um, the person who I think is out of place and was even out of place uh before the injury was James Browning
1: so that's interesting i came over him um where is he ranked was he was in the top um
0: i think he's 11 right now um, um joe's write up said he had an 8 um before the most recent sidelining and so now after the second sidelining he's at 11 at the second injury yeah, like I and and for me that injury moves him down the list a pretty far like away. into the
1: 30s almost like into the
0: maybe buyer maybe beware I, category. I, um, yeah, he's definitely in the buyer beware category, uh, especially since his team control runs through 47. I don't know. That's it's a who am I to complain? It's just when I look at James Running, I'm not sure that I would be throwing all of my prospects at him right now.
1: Yeah, I I thought about that in general. Like one of the trends, one of the things I caught as I was going through this, and I'm a pitching guy, so I tend to overrate pitching. But uh, I tended to think that the pitchers in general were ranked a little low. But when you account for the injury patterns, I think that makes sense, right? Like, uh, sure, if you could guarantee that they wouldn't get hurt, almost all of these starters should be higher. But you can't, and many of them have already been hurt. And I had the exact same thoughts when I got to Browning. I got to 11. And I'm like, oh, he's pretty good and pretty cheap. Should he be that low? And then I'm like, oh wait, second injury. Should he be that high? You know. <laughs> so, yeah, that's a that's a good one. Do you have do you have anything else, or is it, is it my
0: turn? Um, the other one that I was interested in is more on the uh, honorable mention list, and that is my pitcher David Lee.
1: So I would imagine that you are saying he should be higher rather than not listed at all, <laughs> would be where... He...
0: I was surprised... Yeah, I was surprised that he was on the honorable mention list. I mean, he's a, one of those five... He's still in his min sal seasons. He's pretty dang solid. I assumed that he would be higher on the list.
1: So who would you bump to get him on? That's always the question I ask when there's the this guy should be higher" question. And I'm sure you, you could think of somebody, but... I, I guess my response to that maybe is, are there just so many incredible 25-and-under guys right now?
0: That's a, a fair statement, and I can pick through a bunch of players in that top 40 to 50 range and say, well, I might slide him in over this guy or might not or whatever. Actually,
1: you know, I would take Dave Lee over Browning right now if you gave him the option. With the injury, with the injury
0: history. Yeah, it's kind of my point. With the injury history, that puts Browning in a different situation. You know, and I can, the other thing that goes into mind is, I mean, personally, I would take Lee over uh, Al Colbert, my own big reliever. I'd take Lee over Lorenzo de' Medici, Nashville, you know, so I'm looking down that list. I'm not saying that I'm right. I'm just saying that from a perspective, uh, who would I trade before I would trade Dave Lee, I would certainly trade Al Colbert before I would trade Dave Lee.
1: I think to some degree you and I are both going to run into some of the same issues in criticizing this particular list because Joe has an amount of realism built into this list that you and I probably aren't using. He has some he has performance. <laughs>
0: Damn you, Joe, quit being so yeah, real. <laughs> but I mean, there's a lot of
1: performance space in here, right? And Dave yes. Lee's performance has been nothing that would make you think that. But we of course have ratings bars. And um, I think you and I are largely on the side of ratings bars first, performance second, that I know that except in the strangest of cases, the ratings bars are going to be more reliable and that I, I know that if a guy has done poorly with a year and a half of experience or not poorly, but not as good as these rating bars assume or project, I'm still going to believe the ratings bars going forward. I, and I think that this list doesn't necessarily represent that aspect as much, and it probably should It wouldn't be much fun if it did. So it's it's more real and know. more fun yeah. as is.
0: Without a doubt, without any question. And it, it is also completely fair, especially in this day and age of relative ratings, to look at uh, performance as something that is well, sure, indicative of something. Yeah. So, uh, who do you have? What so the, we're have? on.
1: We're kind of on the same. Mine's Bill Constable um at 27 i would have him way higher and it comes back to this idea of what i said at the beginning if i made this list it would be just be a bunch of 60 potential 60 potential guys on minimum contracts (laughs) would be the whole list one one through 500 would be all of the guys on minimum contracts that were like two win or better players and this comes down to a point that i'm going to make until i think everybody understands it we do not have a 110 million dollar salary cap effectively that's what the number is, but what we really have is a 90 million dollar salary cap plus 50 time fifth uh, plus 500k times the number of roster spots you haven't used, up to 20 million. If you're if you have a full 40 man roster of your 110 million is gone, right off the top. That doesn't exist. Um, and this is a thing like when I was first GMing, not in this league, but when I was first GMing in leagues like this. I would have this plan and I'd say, I want to spend this much money on outfield and this much. I don't do this anymore, but this much money on outfield and this much money on infield and this much on starting pitching and yada, yada. And I'd come up with this like, well, I always seem to run out of money before I can get this plan in place. And it was until I started to realize you think 500K isn't much and that 700K arb on that kind of marginal backup guy you barely use that's sitting in AAA isn't much. But that stuff all adds up. For example, if you ran with a, if you only use 32 of your 40 man, you know, if you just don't carry a lot of dead weight, it's like a four and a half million dollar reliever that you could shoehorn into your bullpen um, out of free agency, as opposed to a bunch of 500k guys that are populating your AAA team. And so the the uh, the reason I'm bringing this up is, guys who are making minimum salary, they aren't making they aren't making 500k, they're making zero. And the reason that's important is it becomes into those kind of dollar per win calculation sorts of things. Their value is not eight wins divided by 500K. It's eight wins divided by zero. It's the, the value of people that are not making money and providing multiple wins above replacement is, in my mind, the way I build teams, incomparably huge because they are free wins, and yes, if you're good, you can't, it's very difficult, very difficult to have a team of all men's salary guys and, and and win a boatload of games. You're going to have to pay for somebody. But the more men's salary guys you have, the more money you have left over to give Dong Po Thumb $40 million a year when you have to do something. That like is that. completely true. So um, I yes. think Bill Constable should be higher. The only reason I wouldn't say that he should be is because he's not, qu- if he had one more year of development, like if Bill Constable was a year older and he was something like nine, eight, six, he'd be number one on my list. There you go. I, with his control being is kind of where it is right now, down at four, where you're actually kind of still maybe worried about it coming in. I'm not that worried. It's moving. You know, it hasn't. It's not stuck. It's moving. So I'm not too worried about it at all. But with it being low, I could see. But I would actually still have him right outside the top ten. I'd have him up around like 13 or 14 rather than 27.
0: And that's probably sure. fair. Uh, it, it, well, it's automatically fair because this, these kinds of you can uh, say almost whatever made. you
1: want, and it's fair.
0: <laughs> yeah, these kind of systems are completely made to make these kinds of arguments, which makes them so fun. But uh, I definitely want to write on your comment about the 500k players because you can turn that uh, all sort. You can twist that all sorts of ways. I like your way of thinking about it, but you know, as a bare minimum, you're going to have 27 players at 500k, so you automatically have uh, if I'm if I'm doing my my math correct? That's thirteen and a half million dollars. That you—that's your minimum salary. Right. So if you use that as your baseline, <laughs> so thirteen and thirteen and a half million dollars for replacement level performance at that stage, you're starting to build war. Right. And so, for every five hundred k person that you can, a five hundred k player that makes two war is hugely valuable.
1: It's high, it's it's um, uh, that's it. So it's so damn stupid valuable. it just
0: can't right, even right right. Now, the problem, of course, is you don't want to put – I mean, you're not going to be able to put 27 players on the roster at 500K. I am going to
1: try. Damn if it, you, <laughs> you, you,
0: But you should be using that as kind of – in your framework and my framework, we use that as the ideal goal, right, in that sense. Because you then have 27 times 2 is 54 that's fifty-four wins on top of replacement, which is basically forty-two to forty-eight, depending on who you want to count. So take fifty-two uh, plus forty-eight and you got a hundred win yep. team, right? Using a squishy war math. Um, so anyway, that's kind of the ideal situation. But the main point is to your to your thing, there is if you can put a two war player at shortstop for three min-cell years, and then even when they go to ARB, if they're uh, a two-war player, they're probably not going to make more than 5 or $6 million. right? You could basically put a guy in that slot for six years, and you never have to worry about shortstop again, barring development problems. Yep. <laughs> At which point, you can build the rest of your team and use all of your resources doing all these things. So anyway, blah, 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 yep. blah.
1: No, well, I just... It's the... Um, this is the fun part of the game for me, is that sort of structure building and how much money am I putting in certain places. And, um, you know, we were we were talking a little bit before the show about uh, windows versus keeping a team going. And the biggest reason that I choose to keep a team going rather than adopting the window strategy is I just enjoy the challenge of how do I turn this roster over in real, t- in real time constantly and stay competitive. I find that for me, it's a much more mentally taxing game than the how do I... Blow up in this volcanic explosion of young talent that just dominates the league for three to four seasons. There's challenge in both of them. I could see that if I wanted to look for like just the peak, you know, can I make a 130 win team? That could be, you know, really incredibly challenging and rewarding. But it's again, it's just kind of the, uh, it's, you know, asset management. And I could see myself getting lazy with the other approach where it's like, eh, I don't need 130 wins, 110 is plenty, you know, <laughs> or, so how, yeah. how many superstars do I need to acquire for 130 wins? Oh, it's a little harder than I want it to be. Fine. 115.
0: <laughs> well, and, and then that light, the BBA is amazing. The structure of the BBA is amazing to, to try to capsulize our conversation before into one tiny green, you know, it is possible here in the BBA to stay on the top, for decades, it's possible, but it is really hard yeah. because there's so many transitions that you need to make. I have been in other out-of-the-park leagues where not only is it possible to win for decades, once you have built the structure, it's almost hard not to. Right. <laughs> um, you, you almost have to have some horrible things happen in some other leagues or be just totally derelict in your duty. To not, um, to not do it. It is a huge challenge to stay on top for a very long time. Uh, you look at what uh, Aaron is doing in Rockville right yeah, now.
1: That's been really impressive. Uh, they have
0: gone through one transition, and they're getting ready to go through another. My own transitions in Yellow Springs, I did a good transition in the early 30s. I did a bad transition in the late 30s, and it cost me two years, right? Yeah. Um, the hard part about this is building that structure to begin with. And um, and so that's that that all boils into this. How do you value players versus short term and long term and min sell and big contracts? And when is it okay to it's almost impossible to do a bad one year contract, but you can do a really bad six year contract
1: and you can do. Yeah. And, you know, just to just to spin your earlier statement the other way. It also wouldn't be fun if you couldn't stay on top. So you can develop a league structure where it would be almost impossible to stay on top for more than three or four years at a time. And I don't know that that would be right. fun either, um, to force everybody yes, into I a temporary build strategy every time. So yeah, the BBA yes. is just really threading that needle very, very well of the, you know, you can do it, but it's quite difficult.
0: And you see it. I mean, even Matt in Las Vegas, you know, he had his big run. He ran into a set of problems, and now Vegas is struggling, right? Brett kept it going along as well as Brett could keep it going along. But the wheel, the the wheels were going to fall off. You could almost see it yeah. happening.
1: And then, yeah, then Matt.
0: <laughs> it doesn't matter yeah, how good of a GM Matt ran away at that to point. Nashville. The wheels are going to fall off, Brett. and then you got to right. figure He's it out. He's
1: like, oh, right. the writing's on the wall. I'm going to go hide in Nashville for a couple of years. But Brett Schrader, what did you do to <laughs> my team? And then came back. <laughs> I mean, I'm just kidding. That's not, that's <laughs> not the storyline at all. But in my head, that's the storyline.
0: Oh, yeah. The, the storyline is whatever we make it. So I'm, I'm willing to go down whatever path you yeah. want to take. All right. I think we pretty well spun out of control here. Um, Joe, fantastic trade value series like always. One of the highlights of the year. It creates lots of good conversation.
1: Yeah. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Um, and I guess that's all we have. We'll hear from us you'll hear from Saturday words goodbye night. <laughs> you get to turn that you get to turn that into an outro <laughs>
0: we'll, we'll work it out one way or the other you've been listening to the BBA today a podcast that covers the Brewster Baseball Association every day Music is bold statement, available at Feslianstudios.com and used with attribution. Be safe and well, and we will hear you again tomorrow.